welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. The lead story, once again, concerns the war in the Ukraine at the very heart of Europe. And there's new thinking going on. In fact, some military analysts are speculating that the Russians may unleash chemical warfare, including white phosphorus, on the battlefield. Well, I have some indirect experience with this. I served two years in the United States Army, took a number of courses in military science. So we'll see a few things about what's happening with Ukraine. Why did the Russians bungle the invasion so badly? And what about this new talk about chemical warfare in the very heart of Europe? And then we'll say a few things about COVID-19. You know, there's new thinking going on among scientists about the trajectory of COVID-19. One time we thought that herd immunity, herd immunity was just around the corner, but now it's been over two years since that outbreak of the virus, and we're not close to herd immunity. So what went wrong? Why are some scientists now revising their estimates of COVID-19? And also, we're going back to the moon. The Artemis rocket is poised to test its engines in preparation for a 2024 flyby of the moon itself with astronauts. Live astronauts, including a woman and a person of color, are to go circling around the moon in 2024, perhaps landing on the moon in 2025 or soon afterwards, and then on to Mars. So we'll say a few things about, well, is it a waste of time and money? What are we going to get by sending a moon rocket around the moon and on to Mars? And then we'll say a few things about schizophrenia. That's right, about 1% of the human race is inflicted by schizophrenia. And the whole question is, where does it come from? Is it possible to find a cure? Well, the largest, the largest study ever done on schizophrenia, its results are now being published. We're talking about the fact that 76,000 people participated in this massive study to identify the genetics behind schizophrenia. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today, once again, is the war in the Ukraine. And there's talk. Talk about perhaps the Russians may unleash chemical warfare on the battlefield. Well, let me say a few things about this. I served two years in the United States Infantry, stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia, and also Fort Lewis, Washington. And I had to take courses in a new kind of science, a science that I didn't even know existed. I know about physics and chemistry and a little bit about biology, but this was military science, the science of warfare. And so taking these courses, I began to realize that yes, there's a whole lore of lessons learned from thousands of years of warfare. And then the question is, why are the Russians bungling it so badly, at least up to the present time? Well, first of all, I learned that the biggest mistake 
that you can make as a military man, the biggest mistake you can possibly make is overconfidence. And that's exactly what happened with the Russians. The Russian military had success in Chechnya, Georgia, Syria, Crimea, a string of victories. They were batting a thousand. And each time it was like a pushover. Yes, they were able to flatten entire cities, create what are called war crimes in these various areas, but hey, they got away with it. So that was the first big mistake they made, that they thought it would be a cakewalk. That's the same mistake that the Nazis made during World War II. The Nazis planned to have a very short, brief war against the Soviet Union, and so they surrounded Stalingrad. But it got bogged down, and as a consequence, the 8th Army of the Nazis did not anticipate the Russian winter. And yes, it was General Winter. It was General Winter that froze the Nazi military, making them easy to be picked off by Soviet troops. In fact, the gasoline, the gasoline in many of the Nazi tanks froze. It was that cold. And many Soviet troopers came in on skis, skis and just picked off the Nazis. Well, when I was taking courses in military science, we learned several things that are unbreakable in warfare. The first thing which you cannot break is the chain of command. And yet the chain of command was in tatters in the Russian military. Eight generals, eight generals have been killed, it's estimated, in the opening shots of the war, meaning that there was a leadership vacuum. In fact, until recently, there was no number one coordinator of the entire invasion of the Ukraine. Amazing. Not to mention that at the bottom of the chain of command, there was a huge gap. First of all, conscripts only come in for one year. I mean, give me a break. What can you learn about military science, life and death, artillery, um, helicopters, tanks, armored personnel carriers? What can you learn in just one year? You get trained, they give you a rifle, and they push you on the battlefield. But most important, the Russian military did not utilize sergeants, NCOs, non-commissioned officers. You know, I was groomed to be an officer in the United States Infantry. And the first thing you learn is trust your sergeants. Your sergeants, they may not have a bachelor's degree from an Ivy League school, but your sergeants, they've seen the face of warfare. They're battle-hardened. They've been through many different kinds of firefights. They've been tested under pressure. You trust your sergeants, your NCOs. But, well, many of the Russian battalions had no NCOs. And so many of the young recruits, they came in thinking it was just going to be a military exercise. That's right. They were duped. A lot of them were told it was just going to be a military exercise, a cakewalk. They're going to walk in, shoot some rifles in the air, and declare victory, have flowers thrown at them, and they would be hailed as heroes. Nope, it didn't work that way. So many of the raw Russian troops were shocked when they found out that the Ukrainians were firing back at them with real bullets. So that was the first big problem, the chain of command. Second, logistics. Logistics, logistics, logistics. You know, why did the Nazis lose 
their battle against the Russians in the Battle of Stalingrad. That was the most important war in the entire history of World War II, yet it is hardly mentioned in American textbooks. Hitler thought that Stalingrad would be a cakewalk. He thought that the troops would defect. He thought that they would throw flowers welcoming the Nazis into Russia, and he would simply lay siege to Stalingrad. Stalingrad would fall, and that would be yet another victory for the Nazis. Nope. As I mentioned, the Eighth Army froze. It took longer than they thought. Tanks began to sink into the snow and the mud, and the Nazi Eighth Army basically froze. Gasoline freezes at those temperatures, and then the Soviet troops came in on skis and were able to rout the Nazi army. Now the tables are turned. Now it is the Russians, the Russians who are overconfident, the Russians who are getting bogged down in the mud. It's the Russians who have all these problems that the Nazis faced back in World War II. And so the Russians, just like the Nazis, made the most critical mistake and that is overconfidence. And the weather compounded the logistical problem. Just like General Winter froze the Nazi Eighth Army, it turns out that Russian tanks this time got stuck in the mud, where they were easily picked off by anti-tank weapons. Now, I had a chance to fire some of these anti-tank weapons when I was in the military undergoing basic training. They're very portable. It's like a tube a tube about, oh, three and a half feet long. You put the rocket inside the tube and you put it on your shoulder, aim it, and fire it. And what do you aim at? You aim at the treads and the neck. That's where you aim the missile. Because if the missile hits the, hits the treads of a tank, no matter how big or powerful that tank is, the treads are not reinforced and you simply blow the treads right off the tank. And if you hit the neck, the neck of the tank, you blow the turret off. And that is how one person can immobilize an entire tank. Well, so the first lesson of warfare is chain of command. The second lesson of warfare is logistics. The third lesson is know your enemy. Well, just realize that the Ukrainians are no fools when it comes to military hardware. I mean, who designed who deployed many of the advanced weapons that supplied the Soviet Union with these weapons? It was the Ukrainians. That's right. Part of the Soviet arms industry was based in the Ukraines. And the Ukrainians, of course, understood how to make cruise missiles. And apparently they fired two cruise missiles at the Russian flagship, the Moscow, and sunk it which is a tremendous psychological victory for the Ukrainians. And so know your enemy. And just remember that the Ukrainians are fighting on their home turf. Now, then the next question is, what happens just like what happened in Syria, Chechnya, Georgia, Crimea, when the Russians come in with overwhelming firepower? Is that enough? I mean, the will of the people, is the will of the people stronger than the guns of the man? Well, we'll see. Now they're talking about chemical warfare on the battlefield. I had a chance to see a demonstration of what chemical warfare would look like. Think of it for a moment. The year is now 1968. 
I was a raw recruit. I didn't know up from down. And we were put in these gigantic bleachers at midnight on a warm summer day in outside Atlanta, Georgia, in Fort Benning, Georgia. So there you are on a nice, warm summer night, watching into the distance, hearing the crickets, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you see gigantic helicopter gunships roaring down, firing huge, huge volleys of napalm. And when napalm hits the ground, it creates a volcano, a volcano of bright lights. It's all the, ga all the jellied gasoline fling in all directions. And then, to top it off, the military then begins to fire white phosphorus at the dark. What is white phosphorus? It's one of the most devastating kinds of chemical weapons. When white phosphorus explodes, it creates this mini volcano of lights. And when one of these particles hits your skin, it burns right through your skin. In fact, these particles will burn right through muscle and go all the way down to the bone. So if one day you are in the gun sites of white phosphorus, watch out. You begin to look like Swiss cheese. Swiss cheese because all the particles of white phosphorus burn, burn right through flesh, right through muscle and tissue. The only way to stop this burning is to put your hand underwater. White phosphorus requires oxygen. When you put your hand underwater, it shuts it off. But then, but then when you lift your hand, it starts up all over again. So I would hope that white phosphorus, napalm, or jelly gasoline is never used on the battlefield because it is a, it is a horrible, horrible way to die. But then, what did I learn? Here I was, a raw recruit, about to be sent to Vietnam. What did I learn from this huge demonstration of firepower? I saw jet airplanes come down with artillery shells and gunships. I saw helicopters come in firing bullets at an enormous rate. Tanks coming in just blowing the enemy away. What did I learn as a raw recruit in the United States military? Well, I learned one thing. We had the helicopter gunships. The Vietnamese had none. We had the napalm and the white phosphorus. The Vietnamese had none. We had the jet aircraft. They had none. We had the tanks. They had none. We had overwhelming conventional firepower. They had none. And then the lesson that I drew was they were winning. How was it possible that they could be winning with we had, when we had overwhelming firepower in our hands? Well, I think the Russians are going to feel the sting of this same lesson as well. And that is, you cannot fight against the will of a united people. Of course, you can create enormous damage, enormous casualties, but that only stiffens the resistance. In other words, the last lesson that I learned was you have to win the hearts and minds of the people. I mean, why are we there? Why are we halfway around the world if we're going to have them shoot bullets at us, is that the way that a military achieves victory? Ultimately, to hold territory, you have to win the hearts and minds of the people. Well, let's move on, because I do want to talk about other topics, including the coronavirus. 
what's the latest concerning the coronavirus? Some people are throwing away their masks. They're celebrating because they say, we licked it. Well, first of all, not so fast. First of all, when you talk about the virus, the first thing that a lot of people think is herd immunity. Haven't we hit herd immunity? That is the magical point at about 75% or so of the population being inoculated or having the virus in the past. Those people are invulnerable, meaning fewer and fewer targets for the virus. Well, that's the way it is on paper. That's not the way it turns out in reality for several reasons. First of all, the virus mutates faster than we thought. At first, it was just the alpha, then the delta, then the Omicron, and now the Omicron uh, version two. So we begin to realize that it does mutate. And as a consequence, it means that the vaccines are not as potent as we thought. Now, of course, the vaccines have worked to a degree. If you do get the virus, chances are it's gonna be like a cold rather than a death warrant. However, it does mean that you will come down with a cold of some sort. And it does mean that the vaccines are not 100% effective. And so given the fact that the virus mutates, given the fact that each mutation makes each vaccine less effective, it means, hey, we're gonna be living with this thing for a while. So in other words, the transition from a pandemic to an endemic turned out to be much more difficult than we thought. Now just realize that if you take a look at the measles, for example, the measles virus, the vaccine is over 90% effective. It's a highly contagious virus, the measles virus, but it is possible to live with it, especially with a vaccine because it doesn't mutate that rapidly and the vaccines are effective. However, the coronavirus is mutating faster than we thought and each variety poses new challenges. The same thing with HIV. HIV also has a problem in the sense that it mutates extremely fast and therefore to find the choke points, to find the choke points in the replication of the HIV is very difficult. In fact, in the early days, that's why scientists devised a cocktail of three different medicines, not one, but three different medicines, which would attack the HIV virus at different stages in its replication process. So one chemical didn't do it. It took three. And so is that a cure for HIV? No, but it allows you to live with it. And some people think that, well, in a worst case scenario, perhaps the, this virus will undergo the same trajectory. And speaking about medicine, let's say a few things about schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a horrible disease. It's a disease which afflicts roughly 1% of the entire human race. People begin to hear voices or perhaps see hallucinations. And if you want to see this in living color, chances are if you go outside and see the homeless, and some of the homeless are talking to themselves, just talking to the wind, chances are they have some form of psychosis like schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is part genetic. Uh, it is not fully genetic because you can have twins, one twin with schizophrenia and the other twin without schizophrenia. So it's not totally genetic. However, there is a very strong genetic link. If your loved ones 
if your closest relatives have schizophrenia, then chances are you might be a carrier of some sort. Well, this is where a new study coming in from Cardiff University in England has shed some light on this incurable affliction. First of all, in the largest study ever done on the genetics of schizophrenia, they analyzed 76,000 people. This is huge. The largest number of people that were ever, that were ever analyzed in history. And from this, they were able to look at the genes and the correlation between genes and schizophrenia. First of all, they found that there were 287 areas where there was overlap between a defect in the genome and the disease, and they narrowed it down. 120 genes, I repeat, 120 genes have been linked directly to schizophrenia. So what are the conclusions of this? First of all, this is not a cure. This is not even an expose as exactly what schizophrenia is. But it did put to rest some alternative theories. This new test of 76,000 people, this new test concluded that it is a disease of the neurons. You see, before, they didn't know what schizophrenia was. Was it a disease of the entire brain? What part of the brain? Is it a disease of, of different organs of the body? Exactly, what is schizophrenia? Now we know that it is, in fact, a disease of the neurons. Neurons are misfiring. Now, exactly how they misfire, that is beyond the, the scope of the genetic uh, test that was done. But at least they've been able to narrow it down, even though at, this, at the present time, there's no cure for this disease. This disease, by the way, afflicts males earlier than females. When males undergo puberty, that's when they first begin to hear voices. And eventually, without medication, the voices eventually take over. And lastly, let me say a few things about outer space. The Artemis rocket. The Artemis rocket is poised, after three delays, poised to have a test launch. It is a launch of the booster rocket that will take our astronauts back to the moon. And so the Artemis rocket is huge. In fact, it is perhaps the biggest rocket that we've ever fielded. Uh, the Artemis rocket has an Orion capsule. And in this test, which was delayed three times because of different problems, they want to test the effectiveness of the system so that in 2024, they will launch astronauts around the moon. And in fact, in 2024, there will be perhaps a woman and a person of color on that ship that goes to the moon. And then around 2025, 2026, astronauts will go back to the moon and land, land on the moon. And then who knows, around 2030 or beyond that, perhaps it is on to Mars. At least that's the timetable. We'll have to wait and see whether or not NASA can keep to that timetable or not. But once again, the rocket, the Artemis rocket, has been delayed after three delays. There's yet one more delay. So the test launch will probably be in June or July. But the actual test of real astronauts going on a round-trip mission to the moon is going to be scheduled for 2024. 
And then we, let's, lastly, let me say a few things about uh, the year 2024, that it marks the 50th anniversary of when astronomers sent a message from the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico to the stars. It was an attempt by humans to make contact with alien civilizations in space. Basically, the message said, here we are. We are humans. We are here on the third planet of a star in the quadrant, this quadrant of the Milky Way galaxy. We come in peace. Let's make contact. Well, that was 50 years ago. And there's going to be a celebration in two years to mark the 50th anniversary of that message. But personally, in retrospect, I think it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to announce our existence to alien intelligent life in outer space without knowing who they are, what their game plan is in, and what they want. I mean, who knows? Take a look at what happened to the Aztec civilization when they met Cortez in Mexico. Well, Montezuma, the leader of the Aztecs, made the biggest mistake in ancient history. He thought that Cortez was a god. In fact, Cortez was a bloodthirsty pirate and in a few months was able to topple the Aztec civilization and create chaos throughout the area. So until we know the motivations, and we know the technological development and the game plan of alien civilizations out of space, I think personally we should lie low. We should keep our location in the galaxy a secret until we intercept conversations with these alien civilizations to find out what their game plan is. You see, it's like taking a bet. Chances are they're going to be peaceful. If they can have radio telescope technology and communicate with us, chances are they're going to be pretty advanced, more advanced than us, and perhaps they'll be peaceful. But there's always a slight chance that they might not be peaceful. I mean, after all, if you're walking down a country road and you see a squirrel, do you go down to the squirrel and try to talk to it and have an intelligent conversation? No. You get bored. The squirrel doesn't talk back to you in any intelligent way. And who knows, maybe you might reach for a rifle and go squirrel hunting. And so my personal point of view is, What's the rush? The aliens, if they're out there, are not going to go away. What's the rush? What's the rush in terms of advertising our location in the galaxy, saying, here we are, we invite you to the third planet from the sun? Nope. I think that's a foolhardy idea until we eavesdrop. Eavesdrop on their conversations. Find out a little bit about their motivations and their history and their level of technology. Then and only then, should we make the effort to make contact with them? So I think, yeah, I think they're out there. Perhaps the distances are so great that they don't come to us immediately. But yeah, I think they're out there. In which case, my attitude is, what's the rush? I mean, after all, they're not going to go away. We're not going to go away immediately. And the benefits of having a warning ahead of a contact is enormous. Because then we'll know who they are what they want, and what their game plan is.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. If you want to find out more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U dot O-R-G. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Well, stay tuned now for the second half of exploration when we look at the cutting edge of science and technology, science that affects your life, science that changes the way we view the universe. Stay tuned. to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to continue our discussion about the moon. As we mentioned before, NASA is testing the Artemis booster rocket even as we speak, even though there's been a number of very embarrassing delays. We do hope to have the test done perhaps next month in June. And then after that, perhaps in 2024, the first astronauts will go back to the moon in so many decades. And the question is, what are we going to find? What's there on the moon? And is the moon really a stepping stone to going on to the planet Mars? First of all, recently there have been a number of breakthroughs concerning the moon. We now know that the moon has a lot more water than we previously thought. This water is not in liquid form. It's in the form of ice crystals but it's perhaps leftovers from ancient cometary impacts. Comets are basically made out of water. Comets are made out of ice. In fact, they're, in some sense, dirty snowballs in outer space. But when a comet hits the moon, it doesn't simply vaporize. It simply leaves ice crystals. And these ice crystals could be there for billions and billions of years. And so we think that with water on the moon, that could be used to refuel our astronauts. One day, if we have a permanent moon base on the moon, we'll be able to use that to create liquid water and to filter it for drinking purposes. But also, we could break it up into oxygen and hydrogen for rocket fuel. That's right. It's possible to actually mine the moon for ice crystals that could be used for uh, propulsion. And who knows, maybe after that, to use the moon as a launching pad to go to Mars. Well, of course, there are always naysayers. Some people say, why bother with the moon at all? We know that it's dead. We know there's no gold or valuable minerals on the moon. Why not bypass the moon and go directly to Mars? That's the position taken by people like Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world, founder of SpaceX. And his point of view is that, well, What's interesting is Mars. Mars is a new home, and it is a rocky planet, and it can be inhabited, even though, of course, it's much more ambitious and dangerous than simply going to the moon. A rocket to the moon only takes three days. 
three days, and you could be on the moon. To go to Mars takes nine months, and then you have to wait for the planets to align themselves for the trip back home. In other words, a round-trip mission to Mars would take two years. Well, anyway, with us today is Dana McKenzie. He's the author of a book called The Big Splat about where the moon came from. Believe it or not, there have been a number of theories proposed over the centuries as to where the moon eventually came from. One theory is that perhaps the moon was captured, captured by the gravitational field of the Earth. Another theory is perhaps the moon was blown out of the Earth in an ancient collision. All number of theories have been proposed. However, now we have the moon rocks, now we have the data, and now we can make near definitive statements about the origin of the moon. And so with us today in the second half of exploration is Dana McKenzie, author of the book, The Big Splat, talking about the origin of our nearest celestial neighbor. Now I'd like to bring on our special guest today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Dana McKenzie. He's a mathematician and now a science writer, and he got intrigued by the whole question of the moon. Where did the moon come from? Why do we need a moon? Where is the moon going? The ancients speculated about the origin of the moon, and now we have hard scientific data about the origin of our nearest celestial neighbor. And today we're going to be talking about his latest book. It's called The Big Splat. That's the theory that says that billions of years ago, an asteroid about the size of Mars plowed into the planet Earth and out of the debris, out of the debris, crystallized our moon. So once again, our special guest today is Dana McKenzie, author of the book The Big Splat. And today we are talking about the origin of the moon. How did you right. first get interested in the so-called Big Splat Theory? Yeah. Okay. So, well, the way I got interested in this was that I went to a conference on the Earth and the Moon, in, on the origin of the Earth and Moon, in Monterey in 1998. Actually, I covered this conference for Science Magazine, which I write for pretty often. And uh, I went to this conference and was very struck by the fact that everybody there was talking about something called the Giant Impact Theory. Um, the giant impact theory is what moon scientists actually call it. The big splat is what I call it in my book because I needed a fancier title. Now, you can't write a book called The Giant Impact. It sounds boring, but the big splat sounds more exciting. So, um, But if you actually go up to a moon scientist and talk about it, the giant impact is what, is what they call it. Anyway, so every you know, there are about 100 moon scientists and planetary scientists at this meeting. They all talk about the giant impact theory as if everybody knows what the giant impact theory is. You know, of course you know what that is. That's, that's just, you know, that's the way the moon formed. And, and there's really not that much debate about it. And this stunned me because I had never heard of it, um, even though I consider myself a fairly scientifically literate person. And, you know, as a science journalist, it's kind of my job to know about, about things. And, and uh, I hadn't heard about this theory. And so 
so right away that kind of raised my antennas a little bit, and I said, wow, you know, somehow they haven't gotten the message out there about this theory. Now, here's this big question that we went to, find, went to the moon to find out. You know, where, where did the moon come from? That was one of the big scientific objectives of the Apollo mission. And uh, here they're saying we found out the answer, and yet they haven't managed to tell the public what they found out. Okay, well, let's get right into that now. Now, everyone has a theory of the moon. We see it practically every night. Uh, right. The ancients had theories of the moon. So talk to us a little bit about how the ancients viewed the moon, uh, starting perhaps uh, the Greeks and other ancient societies. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's an interesting question because the ancients, a lot of them didn't know what to make of the moon. Uh, some people thought it was some, something that was in, the, in our atmosphere. You know, other people thought it was a hole in the cosmos that uh, basically uh, you could, is this hole that you can look through and, and see you know, the heavens beyond or something like that. Um, there, were, there were many theories. Um, uh, I think the, the two, two uh, very important theories to, to know about uh, are, first of all, the Aristotelian theory, uh, which dominated the Western viewpoint for literally 1,500 years or so, um, which viewed the heavens as these perfect, incorruptible things that, that the planets and the stars all you know, lived out there. And, and, uh, and as I said, we're, we're, they were, they're considered to be some, made of some different substance, something they, they call it the quintessence. And, uh, and you had this, so, and one of, one of the key things about this theory is that the Earth is at the center of the universe in this theory, and that all these other things are sort of ranged around the Earth. And the Earth is sort of viewed as, as where all the um, bad things are, you know, the, the corruptible things, things that decay and die and stuff like that. And the heavens are out there and perfect. And so this, uh, as I said, this dominated Western thought for, for centuries. Uh, people thought that the Earth was at the center of the universe. What's interesting is that that was not the only theory, even in the era of the ancient Greeks. Uh, there were some people, there's a, a Greek astronomer named Aristarchus, who actually posited the idea that the sun was at the center of the universe, and, and uh, actually came up with the idea very much like what we now call the Copernican system. Uh, and so, so actually, and, and in that theory, when, you know, he, he actually saw you know, the sun as being the center of the universe, and and the planets as being Earth-like bodies that orbited around the sun. And so in this theory, the, the moon was not something that was not so different from the Earth. It was just a piece of rock up there in the sky. And, uh, of course, nowadays, that's what we know it is. So, so they were right. Uh, at the time of the Greeks, you know, no one knew. There was no way to find out. What's interesting is that there was this very vigorous debate during the time of the ancient Greeks. Uh, but the sort of the, the prestige and power of, of Aristotle eventually sort of turned the debate into a, a very one-sided argument. You know, it seems well. fascinating to me that they, the Greeks actually calculated the distance between the Earth to the Moon. Yes, they, they did a number of remarkable things. They could calculate the radius of the Earth, um, and they worked out the distance from the, from the Earth to the Moon. Um, I believe they had some idea, perhaps, of the distance to the Earth from the Earth to the Sun, although I, I don't how accurate they were on that. Um, it's absolutely amazing to me that the Greeks could do those two calculations, the size of the Earth and the distance to the moon, mm -hmm. 
And they did it using just uh, basically string and a protractor uh, by looking at shadows around the ancient world at noontime at a certain time of the year. Not all shadows are the same. Therefore, the Earth must be curved. And they could actually calculate the distance, uh, the radius of the Earth by looking at the the different shadows of yes, the planet Earth. It's actually very mathematical. It's, yeah. it's basic trigonometry. And then looking at eclipses, uh, comparing the solar eclipse to the lunar eclipse and the fact that the two are different. Uh, but both of them involve the moon. Uh, they could then calculate right. the distance between the Earth and the moon. That's right. And again, it's, it's sort of trigonometry. And we're kind of lucky, actually, that the, the moon is just at the right distance where during a, a total eclipse, it just, you know, it just eclipses the sun. It's, it's you know... Not, not too big and not too small, but just right. Now let's talk, about, um, let's talk about Galileo and the telescope. <clears throat> With the um, proliferation of the telescope, we could see craters on the moon. And how did that influence our thinking about the oceans of the moon? When we look at maps of the moon, we see mare this, mare this, yes. mare as in mariner, yeah. uh, as in oceans. Yeah. So how did, the, how did the telescope affect things? Yeah, well, the, the 1600s were a, a very interesting time. Uh, so you had the telescope being invented about 1609, and uh, Galileo got his, heard about it and actually built his own telescope, which was, was uh, the best telescope. Of its, of its day, like 1610, 1611, or so forth. And the first thing he looked at was the moon, because that's the most obvious thing to look at in, in the night sky. And uh, if, if your listeners haven't ever done this, you really should do it. Look at the moon through a telescope, because it just looks completely different. When you look at the moon with the naked eye, there's basically it looks kind of flat, and there's, there's technical reasons for this. Um, but when you look at it through a, a telescope, you can really see the curvature, and, and immediately you can just tell this is not, you know, a flat hole in the sky, you know, or it's not, you know, some, some celestial sphere orbiting up, up there like, like Aristotle said. You can tell that it's the world. And so, um, so when people look through the telescopes, they can see this. And, of course, the first assumption was it's a world like ours. And so you see these, as you said, the mares, which is the Latin word for sea, and the first theory that people had was that these were actual bodies of water, and so so they named them that. And in fact, there was a big race in the 1600s to to name all the features on the moon, and some people named them after, you know, had one naming scheme. You know, people uh, there's sort of a Catholic Church naming scheme, and then there's sort of a uh, uh, English naming scheme, and, and eventually they settled on uh, naming features in, in Latin. So that's why we have things like Mare Tranquilla. Tranquilitatis, which is the Sea of Tranquility. That's where the first moon landing was. And these mares are actually, as I understand, lava flows, uh, volcanoes that covered up. uh, Yeah, so it it became evident to scientists fairly early on that they really were not seas of water. Um, But, of course, they didn't know what they were exactly. Uh, They're just, for some reason, darker than the the rest of the moon moon rocks. So, So we didn't really know for sure what they were until we went to the moon. Uh, on the Apollo missions, and the first mission was to uh, was to one of these seas. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that yeah. in a minute. Uh, but tell us a little bit about Kepler and also uh, the son of Charles Darwin. They also had sure. theories about the moon. Yeah. Well, uh, Kepler was an interesting uh, person to write about. You know, uh, one of the fun things about writing a book is is that it evolves sometimes in ways you hadn't expected. Um, I've always been a big fan of Galileo. 
him. So I had sort of expected to to write a big chapter about Galileo and how important his discoveries were for the moon and so forth. And what I found out was, well, really, Galileo didn't have that much to say about the moon. He wrote this this one fabulous little pamphlet about it, and and then went on to other things. He got more interested in the moons of of Jupiter, and he, of course, was interested in in the whole this this whole solar system and and so forth. So he didn't really actually say that much about the moon. But Kepler sort of was haunted by the moon his whole life, and he actually wrote the, uh, the what some people consider the first work of science fiction, which is called Somnium, the Dream. And, and this dream is actually a dream about a voyage to the moon. And what's interesting about this, ostensibly science fiction, is that it actually has a huge amount of science fact behind it. And it's, it's just a marvelous compendium of what was known scientifically about the moon then and so forth. And of course, Kepler was very much a proponent of, of the idea that the, the moon is, a, is, a, is another world. And he envisioned what it would like, be like to be on this other world. And for example, well, he came up with all sorts of interesting facts, but one thing that he realized, which I'm not sure if most people realize now, is that when you, if you're on the moon, you don't see the Earth rise and set. The Earth stays in the same spot in the sky, and that's because the Earth is tidally locked to, to the to the or sorry the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, so it doesn't it doesn't rotate around the Earth. So you always see the Earth in the same point in the sky. Kepler figured this out. I don't think anyone knew that before. And um, so actually, when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon, the Apollo eight astronauts orbited the moon and took this wonderful picture of Earth rise above the moon. And I think people, you know, probably thought of that as being just like sunrise. Well, actually, the reason they saw Earth rise was because they were going around the moon, and they come around the backside of the moon, and they see the Earth on the other side. But actually, the Earth doesn't rise over the moon. The Earth just stays there. In fact, uh, when we talk about the man in the moon, or people in Asia talk about the rabbit in the moon, mm-hmm. it's right. the same devil moon. Uh, yeah. We never see uh, the backside right. of the moon. Yeah, you don't uh, see the backside. Yeah, because of the fact that one side is locked, locked yeah. onto the planet Earth because right. of something called tidal forces. That's right. And that is where we get to start to talk about Charles Darwin's son. Uh, and here's another one of these sort of unexpected heroes of my book. I mean, everybody knows about Charles Darwin, but very few people nowadays realize that he was actually the father of a, of a tremendous, marvelous scientific family, that his son, George Darwin, uh, was the greatest expert on tides in, in the late 1800s. And he also had a son, Francis Darwin, who was a, a, well, a very noted naturalist in, in his time. Both of these sons were made knights of the British Empire, just like Charles Darwin was. And in fact, around the turn of the century, George Darwin was one of the most famous scientists in the world. Um, now, people have sort of forgotten about him. But uh, one of the things I hopefully have done in my book is, is kind of bring him back into the limelight a little bit. He was the first person to propose a scientifically-based theory for the origin of the moon. And his, because he was such an expert on tides, his theory was actually based on tidal motion. But what he realized is that uh, there are tides on the moon very much as there are on the Earth. And in fact, the Earth has a much stronger tidal effect on the moon than the moon does on the Earth. And so, in fact, the Earth has has locked the moon into position. It, it's not able to, to rotate uh, you know, sort of independently the way, the way the Earth does. And it creates a bulge in the moon, uh, just the same way that the moon creates a bulge in the Earth. Now, 
uh, what 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 George Darwin realized was that the uh, the bulge, the tidal bulge in the Earth, because the Earth is not locked in, the Earth is rotating, and the Earth rotates faster about its axis than the moon, the moon rotates about the Earth. So when the Earth rotates, its tidal bulge is always getting ahead of the Moon, okay, because the Earth's rotation is faster. And so this, this bulge is actually pulling the Moon forward. It's always tugging the Moon forward in its orbit. And uh, so you might think this would make the Moon go faster and faster, but that's not actually what happens. When you, you learn a little bit of Newtonian mechanics, what actually happens when you tug a planet faster in its orbit is it moves out. Okay, so, uh, so the Moon is gradually moving away from the Earth. And uh, George Darwin named this effect tidal friction. And he based this entirely on, on pure physics, on the pure physics of mathematics. And it's very interesting because you know, he had no way of directly verifying this. But one of the things that the Apollo astronauts did when they went to the moon, the first mission, is put a reflector on the moon so you could shine a laser beam at this reflector and look at the way, you know, shine it to the reflector, have it bounce back to the Earth, and actually directly measure how quickly is the moon moving away from the Earth? Okay, uh, let's say a few things about Newtonian physics sure. now, okay? Uh, Newton in the 1600s came out with the definitive laws of gravity, right. which binds the solar system together. And he also calculated the allowed trajectories, including circles, ellipses, hyperbolas, parabolas, but there are no spirals. In free space, in empty space with no friction, sure. spirals are not allowed as a solution of Newton's laws of motion. Therefore, capture was not possible. It's simply physically, mathematically, scientifically not possible for a single Earth in outer space to capture a solitary moon without friction, like air friction, and there's no air in outer space. Right. So we can actually use Newton's laws of motion to rule out one of the main theories yeah. of the origin of the moon. Well, you would think so. Uh, but nevertheless, the capture theory was one of the three main theories going into the Apollo mission. Um, right, because people so, didn't understand right. the laws of physics. Yeah. Well, so let's so let's actually let me just step back for one second and say that the the first theory was George Darwin's theory, which was called the fission theory, and um, so where that came from. So basically, his idea of where the moon came from was that it just spun off the Earth. Okay, the Earth is spinning much more rapidly, and the moon moon flew off the Earth, and the way he arrived at this theory was basically by running the tidal friction scenario in reverse. So basically he saw that the moon is receding from the Earth now, and he said, okay, so I run the movie in reverse, it had to be moving towards the Earth back in the, you know, if we run the movie in reverse, and so eventually when you go back to the beginning, you have the moon actually at the Earth. So, so that's as far as he got the, the so-called fission theory. So that was the first scientifically-based theory of the moon moon's origin. The second one, historically to be proposed, was the capture theory. And as you say, the capture theory, a priori, if you know Newtonian physics, seems to be impossible. Okay? Now, uh, there's, a cap there's a caveat you put in there, though, which is that without friction, you cannot have a spiral orbit. But if you put in some friction, then you could have a capture. And so... Uh, it's, uh, this is very implausible, admittedly, but um, one of the first proponents of the capture theory suggested that maybe the, uh, the interstellar medium actually has some kind of resisting, uh, uh, resisting stuff in it. That he, uh, actually, the, the guy who proposed this was a very colorful guy named Thomas Jefferson Jackson C., uh, an uh, American, uh, very 
self-promoting, self-aggrandizing guy uh, who was one of the first American astronomers to get a Ph.D. in Europe. Um, so uh, he was he was a somewhat well-respected guy in his time, but he had some really wild ideas. And uh, one of these ideas was was the idea that there was something out there in the interstellar, interstellar medium that resisted motion and then enabled the moon to be captured by the Earth. Um, very quickly, that theory became less respectable scientifically. Um, but still, there were, were people who argued for some version of, of the capture where maybe you had uh, a lot of debris around the Earth early in the formation of the system, and that debris could slow something down enough. Okay, well, now let's get to the Apollo space program, because you've been alluding to it. What did the Apollo space program show in terms of moon rocks? What are moon rocks made of? Right. Okay, well, so uh, what's interesting about moon rocks is they're a lot like Earth rocks, but there are some subtle differences. Um, So one of the things, for example, one of the ways they're a lot like Earth rocks is they looked at things like isotope ratios. And um, so, for example, they look at different isotopes meaning different weights of the various elements. Uh, so, if, for example, you can look at oxygen, and there's a, a version of oxygen that's very common, and then there's some heavier version. And these ratios in moon rocks look identical to Earth rocks. So, so this is a, a hint that, that the moon, wherever it formed, probably formed somewhere similar in the solar system to where the Earth did. On the other hand, there are some differences. In moon rocks, you don't see what are called volatile elements. These are elements that have low boiling points. And um, so, uh, so one, this posed a problem for, for some of the theories of the moon. Okay, this the theory that the moon, called co-accretion theory, the theory that the moon just sort of grew up in the same part of the solar system that the Earth did and accreted the same way as Earth did, has a problem with it because it, that doesn't explain why you have this lack of volatile elements. And... Third, another huge difference between the moon and the Earth is that the Earth has almost no core to it. In fact, the moon has no core to it. Yeah, yeah. it has. I said the Earth. Yeah. yeah. So the Earth has a huge core. The mm-hmm. Earth has the biggest core of any planet other than Mercury. Iron but core. The moon, mm-hmm. Yes, and this core is made of iron and, and nickel too, and some heavy elements, but mostly iron. Uh, whereas the moon has a very small core. It's been estimated now at about two percent of the weight of the moon, whereas the Earth core is about 33% of its rate. So, so again, if you have the Earth and Moon growing up in the same part of the solar system, why does one of them get all the iron and the other gets almost none? It makes no sense. So, so basically, uh, what you had is, is this strange situation where there are three theories for the Moon, and none of them really made sense. You know, you have this capture theory that makes very little sense uh, because of Newtonian physics. You have to really stretch to to get, you know, some way to capture the Earth. You have this co-accretion theory, which made sense before we went to the moon, but now all of a sudden we see these differences between the moon rocks and the Earth rocks. And you have George Darwin's fission theory, which also had had troubles with it on physical grounds. So they had three theories of the moon, and none of them seem to make sense. Okay, and now so let's that's talk where about, you get a fourth theory. Okay, now let's talk about the big splat theory. Uh, what are some of the convincing reasons for believing in the big splat? Well, so there's uh, basically the big splat uh, accounts for some of these things that were discovered in the Apollo program. Um, So 
first of all, this uh, volatile depletion, depletion that I talked about, the lack of volatile elements. Well, if you have a, a, a moon forming by a giant impact, a, a catastrophic impact between Earth and another planet, that will blow off a lot of stuff into orbit and some stuff out into space. And what gets blown off preferentially into space is the stuff that has low boiling part, low boiling point. So, so the big splat accounts very nicely for why you don't see volatiles in the moon rocks. Second thing, the iron core. Okay, where did the moon's iron core go? Well, the, the big splat actually turns out to explain this very nicely, that when you have this, this collision, the, the planet that runs into the Earth is basically destroyed. It's, it's, it's completely destroyed. Some of it's vaporized. A lot of it is liquefied. And the heavier elements tend to go into the Earth's core. It's the lighter stuff that tends to go into orbit. So again, uh, the big splat explains the difference in the cores very nicely, and you can actually do computer simulations that, that show it works this way. Well, there you have it. So most likely, the moon was blasted out of the Earth. Well, once again, you've been listening to Dr. Dana McKenzie. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College of New York, inviting you to join us every week for a discussion of science and its impact on society on exploration. Go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. On Facebook, we have 5 million fans, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Good day.